Hey everybody, this is Cam McDonald, and this is my coronavirus podcast slash interview with my dad, Jay McDonald. My dad is an infectious disease doctor in St. Louis who's dealt with the coronavirus a fair bit, and uh, we talk about things like coronavirus on a single patient scale, what precautions and equipment are needed, what a vaccine will look like, and uh, how we could expect to see the next six months. Uh, this was recorded on April 19th, and I hope you guys enjoy all right, so just off the bat, I wanted to get my first question was, uh, what does coronavirus look like, like on a single patient scale when you deal with them? Yeah, so so it's always it's always interesting when there's a sort of a new infection comes along like this because it takes a while to kind of fill out the picture of what a what a new infection looks like. So, you know, early on we heard a lot of different things, and and St. Louis was sort of late in the. Um, progression of arrival in the U.S. And so, you know, we had the benefit of seeing and hearing from docs on the coasts. um, uh, And, you know, sort of by the time it got here, we were able to feel like we had a pretty good idea of what we were looking for. So, so the, the, a couple of things, I mean, there's sort of a typical presentation, but there's also, it's also really shown itself to be the kind of infection that can look a whole lot of different ways, which has made it really difficult to um, to kind of to get our arms around and con- and contain. Uh, a typical uh, sort of a classic presentation is sort of like the flu. People um, start with often with a dry cough, um, then a fever, um, shortness of breath maybe comes later, but uh, muscle aches are real common and fatigue. Those are all signs or or symptoms that you commonly see in influenza. There are a couple that are unique with coronavirus. Uh, One of the things we hear a lot of is people who lose their sense of smell and taste. Um, That happens a lot when people have sinus infections, but with this, it doesn't seem to be associated with nasal congestion. It's just um, a loss of of smell and taste. That's one of those things when we hear it, we think, oh boy. Um, And then there are a bunch of other symptoms that are less common. Uh, Sometimes people have GI symptoms like diarrhea or nausea or shortness of breath, vomiting. Shortness of breath usually happens a little bit later on, but um, those cases that are going to get severe get, do get shortness of breath. So, so, you know, early on, and that's what it looks like. um, People typically take, you know, about a sort of classic case takes about a week to get better. And often if, if, if people are going to do poorly, um, often that the, the turn for the worse happens later in that five to seven day range, uh, at which point they start, you know, sort of almost feel like they have a second downturn and some increasing shortness of breath. And that's when a lot of patients are getting put on ventilators and stuff. They're, they're sort of late in the game, uh, having, having respiratory failure, usually associated with pneumonia. One of the other things that's real common in this, which you don't see in a lot of other respiratory infections, is uh, is uh, what looks like pneumonia on chest x-rays, so uh, often on both sides. And so it's very common for these guys to come in, come into the emergency room with those symptoms, get a chest x-ray, you see a little bit of pneumonia on both sides, and those are people that we're, we're really worried about. The last thing I'll say about this is there are definitely people who catch it and uh, and don't have symptoms at all. Um, and it's not just that they're exposed and they fight it off. They actually do catch it. They, they, uh, they, they take in the virus, they shed the virus out of their respiratory secretions. Um, and that's part of what makes this such a difficult virus to contain because it's not just the sick people who can spread it. It's actually people, some people who seem completely healthy. Okay. I wanted to talk about, um, so right early on when you see a patient, what are like your first precautions you take what do you prescribe them and then i also wanted to talk about about um the equipment needed what kind of shortages shortages you faced like in regards to acquiring this equipment or how that's gone yeah so so up front um with any kind of infection there is um an associated type of protective equipment you're supposed to wear uh, for a lot of infections there's nothing special that you have to do for example you know if someone has a, a run of the mill um, strep pneumonia, uh, you know, you can just wash your hands, be careful, all that. But, but, um, depending on how infections get passed on, sometimes, um, we have to wear special equipment to protect ourselves. So, um, so, and that, and that's been one of the hardest things to wrap our, our hands around with this too. Um, because in order to know what to wear, you kind of have, uh, you know, in terms of protective equipment, you have to understand some characteristics of the virus. And when something's new like this, uh, it's there's a lot of um, there's a lot of 
typically going overboard early on. Um, as it turns out, uh, in this case, it wasn't an overreaction to go overboard early on because it really is uh, one that's that's very transmissible, and therefore um, we you know we, we we wear a lot of protective equipment. So um, so when if you you know if I get called to see a patient who may have coronavirus, um, usually we if 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 it's at the time that they first present to to care, we usually don't know up front what they've got. And but if it's a if it sounds like it might be be uh, COVID nineteen, uh, we'd wear a. Um, usually an N95 mask, uh, although a surgical mask is acceptable as well. Do you well. want to clear up what the difference between an N95 and a surgical mask is? Yeah, let me get there in a minute. Okay. So, so you wear a, um, one of the stronger types of surgical mask. Wear a face shield as well because it's shed in respiratory droplets. So if somebody if somebody sneezes or coughs in your face, you don't you want to keep like it keep, forehead to chin. Yeah, it's a, you typically one that wraps around your forehead and it's a shield that comes down over your face keeps you know spit and snot that mm-hmm. somebody spits out from from hitting you in the face and then gown and gloves which is uh typical contact precaution so that's what we usually wear the n95 the n95 mask is um a mask that is specifically f- um, fitted to the individual so um, we actually in healthcare have to get what's called fit tested every year on these things and um, to make sure that the seal of the mask of the size and brand that you're going to wear um, really does seal around your mouth and nose and that keeps um, you know when you have a when you have a mask on that filters one of the things that you really you know that you may not think about but if it's a really if it's a mask that filters really strongly when you breathe in, it, the path of least resistance for air might be around the mask um, as opposed to through the filter of the mask. And so um, so you have to have a tight fit. If you don't have a tight fit, when you breathe in, the air that you're breathing in will just rush around the mask into your mouth and you've worn and you've you know yeah. effectively worn nothing. Mm-hmm. So so N95s are, are um, you know, filter out the most of the small particles. Um, the surgical mask is sort of the next step down. That's the one. Um, often you'll see people wearing around their ears and with a little metal uh, thing on the bridge of the nose. That's what in medical settings we wear against things that we say are transmitted by what's called droplets like, and influenza flu is the, is the typical one. And then the third kind of mask, which really, honestly, I don't recall this ever coming into medical discussion before, but, um, something that has been, um, that, that people started doing early on and that the CDC finally got behind, and it turns out probably does have significant value, is just a, a cloth mask or really a mask that is that acts mostly just as a barrier. Um, and there are two reasons why that might be helpful. So um, one reason is it might filter things that you're that you're breathing in. So it might you know filter out badness as you take a breath in, but probably equally, if not more important in this particular virus, is that it will, if you're shedding virus, if you're sick and don't know it yet, or even if you do know it, um, when you, the, the, re, the, the virus is being shed in your secretions, in your nose and your mouth. And so um, as you're talking to someone, if you have it and you're shedding virus, um, there's sort of a little, you sort of think of yourself as forming a little cloud in front of your mouth. And if you're having a close conversation, that person can catch it from you. The reason that matters so much with this virus is that there is, as we're coming to appreciate more and more, shedding of the virus before people even get symptoms, or in some cases, people who never get symptoms at all. So that's like sort of a nightmare scenario for someone who's trying to control an infection, right? There, where like, you know, let's say I caught the virus. The usual incubation period, the period from when I'm exposed to when I get symptoms, is about five days. And so there's a five-day period after exposure where I might feel good before I start getting sick. But what, what ends up happening at about day three, without me even knowing it, I'm shedding virus. And so I could be infecting other people without even knowing I'm sick. Um, and so the val- part of the value of these cloth masks is that um, you know, when you're walking around the grocery store and everybody's got their goofy little, you know, their goofy look, mm, little bandana bandanas or, or whatever, mouth, yeah. is that if they're shedding virus, those those barrier masks probably do have a value in containing their secretions and keeping an, an, what, what we call an asymptomatic shedder from infecting someone who's not sick yet. Okay. I wanted to talk about um, the testing strategies because I feel like I hear a lot of 
of buzzwords like PCR and antibody testing, but I kind of wanted to like clear up what what a like a gene PCR test offers and what an antibody test offers as well. Yeah. So so for a lot so PCR technology came along um, back I believe in the 80s. Uh, it really wasn't it, it it wasn't ready for prime time in you terms want to clear of up what PCR stands for. Yeah, sorry. PCR is is polymerase chain reaction, and what what PCR is is you basically have a piece of DNA, and so you, when you think about DNA, it's a double helix, right? It looks mm-hmm. like a ladder that someone's twisted, and so when you're doing PCR, um, what you're really doing is you're you're uh, finding a piece of of DNA uh, and amplifying it like millions of times um, so that you can then detect it and say, mm-hmm. yes, that DNA is there. And so what PCR does uh, is it, the first thing it does is it unzips that ladder. Denatures. The yeah. De- so it exposes the two different sides of the DNA. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it takes then a primer, um, which is one of the things that you put into the PCR mach- or into the PCR uh, system. The primer will uh, then, um, uh, create basically create a new um, template, a or, new strand of DNA yeah. off of yeah, a template like like a RNA off mm-hmm. of the DNA, um, and then and and so basically you um, through a sort of a chain reaction you amplify that segment of DNA a whole lot and then you can say yes it's there, um, and so it's become this really it has a couple of really important um, uses but in this case one of the uses is it helps. Um, it helps sequence genes, so it helps you figure out some the genome of something, mm-hmm. which is really important with a new a new infection like this. And the other thing is, it's sort of the cornerstone of testing. Um, it's a great way if you know the DNA sequence of an organism, which we knew. I mean, the Chinese scientists uh, shared the DNA sequence as soon as they figured it out before it ever made it to our shores. Yeah. Um, if you know the DNA sequence, then you can easily design a PCR, and so. So the PCR is basically our sort of frontline um, uh, diagnostic test for this, and there, uh, as soon as as soon as we knew the sequence, um, a bunch of companies started developing their own PCRs, and so now, and and in order to really be able to use those legally, um, the FDA is supposed to, under normal circumstances, the FDA just. Um, you know, it, it collects you know, or examines all your data that you submit to them and say, yeah, okay, you can use this test. In situations like this where you're trying to move quickly, um, they, they will, the FDA will issue what's called an emergency use authorization, an EUA. And so um, there are about, I don't know, couple few dozen uh, PCR tests now. Is that there slight variations in all of them? There are, are they slight all variations. The there, there, there are slight variations, but um, but it's, there's um, so, so yeah, there probably are differences in the sensitivity and specificity of those tests. Uh, and so there are a bunch of them that have been granted EUAs now and that, and part of the thing that's been really difficult about, in this country, about testing is that um, all these different PCR, all these commercial PCR assays or tests um, are sort of, you've got what the reagents, in other words, the, this little kit, and you also have have to have the machine from that company to run it. Um, that's not the case with all PCRs, but with a lot there are. So and that was a huge problem in, in timing because you'd have to send it off to somewhere else and then you often Often that, but late. also even if you have the machines, like for example, you know, uh, one of the hospitals that I'm affiliated with um, has a cu- three different what are called PCR platforms, which are machines that can run PCRs. And all three of the companies that those, and, and so we had them because we use them to run, we use the, the machines to run PCRs against other things. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, you know, as soon as this all happened, you know, you, you kind of look, you know, get on the internet and you figure out is, you know, are these companies developing COVID PCRs? And sure enough, of course, everybody is because yeah. it's this, you know. Demand. And, yeah, huge demand. And so, so, but... But you're sort of at the mercy of whatever platform you have. And so if you have these commercial platforms, for example, um, let's just say one, one of the companies that is uh, doing a PCR test is called Cepheid. And so Cepheid, um, you know, if Cepheid, if y- y- you'd like to be able to just say to Cepheid, send me a million kits. Mm-hmm. You know, we've got your machine. That way I can test all I want. The reality is Cepheid can only produce those the this it's this is a supply chain thing they can only produce the kits so fast and so 
um, in order to, so the reality is we order kits from that company and we only get a certain number every week. Um, luckily we've got a couple different platforms and we've got, there's another sort of PCR, um, a way to use PCR called open platform where you kind of do your own. It's kind of like homebrewing beer or something. Mm -hmm. Um, so we've, we've got a little bit of several different kits, but the testing, uh, it's, you know, when you, you watch the news and you hear people say, oh, well, you know, we need to ramp up testing. If you live in a country where there's, you know, where in some companies that have, or I'm sorry, some countries that have this great public health infrastructure, the country may say, hey, we're going to develop this test. We're going to use this one test. We're going to, you know, crank out, you know, we're going to ramp up production. So we've got everybody's using the same thing. That's great. And that's, but it's, that's not what's happening in this country. Yeah. What's happening in this country is you've got 30 different companies. Um, you've got all sorts of com- uh, other labs doing their own open platform or sort of homebrew PCRs. And so, um, you know, you can say, yeah, we, we have the ability to test X number of people a day. But if one company has a shortage of their reagents or uh, and can't keep up, then suddenly you find yourself behind the eight ball. Um, where you, you, um, you, you thought last week you were doing good, but suddenly you're short because you were, you know, before we There's were no getting, like standardization yeah, of maybe, production or anything it, like that. And standardization of the platform too, like the, of the, of the, of the machine you run it on. And so, you know, sometimes some, you might feel like you're good. You're, we're doing 250 tests a day. And then all of a sudden, um, you know, the company's like, yeah, sorry, we, our production, yeah, exactly. we're, we're, we can only give you a 40 this week or something. So, so the, 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 it's a huge issue with testing. I'll just briefly say something about antibody tests as well. Cause you asked that. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, so the, the PCR detects the virus directly. Antibodies are, antibody tests direct or detect your body's response to the virus, yeah. right? Because you're, you know, when you get exposed to um, a new anything, a new antigen, which is whether it's a virus, a bacteria, a parasite, a allergen, whatever, um, your body's, one of your body's immune responses to it is to make an antibody that will, that is a little protein that's designed to stick to that um, pathogen, to that whatever the little nasty thing is. Um, and it's sort of, it's sort of, um, I think of it as, as antibodies as like you sort of, they tag onto the pathogen and signal the rest of the immune system to come and eat that pathogen up. And so, and so that antibody is very specific to that thing, that virus in this case. Um, the antibodies take a little while to develop. And so usually how long? Well, it's, it's variable by, by thing, by organism or by pathogen. But in this case, it's probably about a week before the antibodies start showing up. And so it's not as good an upfront test, but it's a really good test for where have you ever been exposed? And it's also in most cases, a really good test of, are you immune to it? Because, um, people who've mounted antibody responses should be immune to things. But is with coronavirus, is there a guarantee that, that they're immune to it after you've been exposed? Yeah. So that's another thing. Besides, I also, I sort of mentioned earlier how this whole idea of asymptomatic shedding is one of the things, one of the sort of superpowers of this virus, um, that makes it so hard to control because people shed it, you know, because people, you can catch it from people who don't look sick. Um, another thing that may be another one of its little sort of superpowers is that there are some people who get sick from it and don't develop antibody responses. And the second thing is, it's not, we're, we're sort of at a stage now where, you know, this has only been around in the U.S. for, you know, less than two months. So we're, we're the understanding of it literally grows day by day. Um, but we really don't know for sure that even if you have an antibody response that you're completely protected and that's relatively unusual with most infections, if you got an antibody to it, you're good. You know, that means your, your, your body will, uh, fight it really effectively. But with COVID-19, um, we're still, we're in an area right now where the antibody tests are just rolling out. We're just starting to get access to them. Um, but it's, we really don't know how to use them yet. You know, you'd like to be able to test people, especially say healthcare workers test. Like I'd love to know if I've had it. I don't think I have, but I could have caught it asymptomatically and gotten through it. Um, but if you, you'd think, you know, if antibody positive means you're good, you're safe. It'd be incredibly useful for healthcare workers because 
so many of us um, have, have been around, been around it, and it's like so just often. it'd be so nice, especially knowing that all the protective equipment is so short. You know, it'd be great to be able to say, "Hey, to just I'm have a this guarantee that I'm fine. I can, <laughs> yeah, you know, I'm what good. I mean? I'm I'm super get up close for this. personal." So, um, so yeah, so it's been so the antibody thing is really interesting. I think in another couple of weeks or another month, uh, we'll know a lot more. All right. So after a short little break to make sure uh, the sound equipment was okay, aka my iPhone, I uh, wanted to get back into it with uh, you explaining how you got into infectious disease, how you got to be in this position. Sure. So, um, so I grew up in Oregon uh, and um, went away to college on the East Coast and uh, didn't really know what I wanted to do with my life. I got an econ degree uh, and then I kind of realized toward the end of college that I didn't really want to do anything related to economics, that I really wanted to go to medical school. So after college, I went back home. I spent a few years um, going back to school uh, and getting a biology degree and taking my pre-med requirements. Um, working in a research lab and doing some volunteer work, and finally got into medical school at Oregon Health Sciences, which is the medical school in Oregon. Um, and then, so four years later, after I finished that, um, I uh, started my training and actually did all my training all seven years uh, at Duke University in, in Durham, North Carolina, which is where you were born. Um, and I think like a lot of people in medicine, they'll tell you they... You know, there, there are some people who go into med school or residency or whatever kind of knowing exactly what they want to do with their life, but most people who think they know end up changing their mind, um, and I was one of those people who was pretty wide open. I considered all sorts of things, but, it, but really, when you're in that position, especially once you get to the point that you're actually seeing patients, it becomes pretty obvious what you get excited about. Like, you know, when you're done with medical school and you're, for example, when I was an intern, that's when you, you know, work your butt off and you're everybody's grunt and, um, you know, you get exposed to everything, get exposed to everything. Yeah. And spend the night in the hospital taking care of sick people. And that really for most people is, is where they figure it out. For me, it was like, you know, if I get a call in the middle of the night and someone's having chest pain, I'm like, uh, you know, if I get a call in the middle of the night and someone's having a, you know, kidney problem, uh, but man, you gotta have a fever. Now I'm interested, you know, yeah, jump, jump out of bed. Let's go figure <laughs> this out. You know, I just, I, I like the problem solving of it. And I like the fact that most people with infectious diseases, you can fix once you figure out what's wrong yeah. with them. So I, I, I'm a, I enjoy that process of, you know, solving the mystery and, and applying the right, the right treatment. So that's how I got into it. With that being said, so you've got about 15 years of, uh, of profession under you. You've seen SARS, H1N1, Ebola, Zika, uh, like pandemic or pandemic-like infections. How does a coronavirus compare to those and what effect did those have on our coronavirus response? Yeah, so, um, so I've... Um, while I haven't seen cases of all those things, thankfully, that you listed, I've, I've sort of lived through them. And anytime one of those things uh, c- comes to pass in the world, um, you know, everybody's ears kind of perk up and you and hospitals and healthcare systems and states and countries start doing preparedness um, and preparing for preparing for a new infection to come along is um it seems like it should be relatively straightforward, but let me tell you, it's not. Um, you know, these, these uh, the preparedness stuff that, that you do can be extremely time-consuming. Uh, I, I think, for me, one of the early ones that I had a lot of, uh, spent a lot of time on was Ebola, um, which never ended up landing in North Carolina, thank, or in uh, St. Louis, thank goodness. Um, but uh, H1N1 for, was an example of something that came along that was a, a, a pandemic and um, and that we were, you know, we were legitimately kind of concerned about because like a lot of flu strains, this is one that sort of, uh, made the jump from, from animal to human. H1N1 is also the swine flu. If it w- kind of went by both names yeah. at the time. Yeah, but exactly. I just wanted to kind of clear that up. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so, you know, anytime there's a new infection that comes along there, there are a lot of things that, you know, we don't know about it, which makes a lot of uncertainty and, um, and, uh, and also, um, anything that's new, there probably isn't much population immunity to. And so the first time something passes through the, um, the population, it can be really devastating. Um, so, so I've, so there are a lot of similarities and differences between those. One of the things, uh, there are a couple of things that, you know, the, the, the headlines that you worry about with any new infection. Number one, what's the mortality rate? So, you know, nobody would care about a pandemic of the common cold. Mm-hmm. Um, but, 
Um, but you know, you sort of, so, so, so mortality rate is, is really important. So Ebola scared the heck out of everybody because, um, the mortality rate in the, you know, in the third world was uh, sort of approaching 50%. Um, what we, you know, what we saw was with sort of modern medical care, it was a little bit lower than that, but it was still really incredibly deadly, uh, infection, maybe more, more deadly than almost anything else we see. Um, of, of the ones you listed, or how about the ones that I've seen, you know, I'd say Ebola was the, was the highest mortality. One that happened, uh, a, a few years back that didn't get as many headlines cause it never really, um, made a significant landing in the U S was MERS, which was another coronavirus, middle East respiratory syndrome actually was a coronavirus that was that, that where the intermediate host, the host before humans is actually the camel, believe it or not. And so that coronavirus, uh, has still, is still circulating in the Middle East, um, but is not that widespread. Um, then you step down a little further. SARS is down there. Uh, so MERS, MERS mortality, I think was around 35%. SARS was down around 20. Um, and what's coronavirus at? Coronavirus currently? is about, in, in, in this country, it's about 2%, which sounds pretty wimpy. But when you compare it to, you know, the, the common respiratory infection that is closest to that, that we see all the time is influenza. Influenza is about 0.1%. Wow. Okay. So when you think about it, um, COVID-19 is probably about 20 times more likely to kill you than influenza is could that if you have, catch it. Could that have, like... Could that be in uh, a byproduct of like shortage of of equipment or or knowledge on the? So it's yeah. So so if you look country to country, there are huge there's huge variability in mortality rates. And so if you look, you know, if you look at what what it looks like when the healthcare system is overwhelmed, look at the mortality in Italy, where the mortality is over ten percent, and that's because they didn't have enough they didn't have enough hospital beds, they didn't They're have enough flooded. ICU beds, they didn't have enough ventilators, um, and so. You know, the fact that you look at, you know, Missouri data now and you see that the mortality really is hanging right around 2%, you know, that's sort of best case scenario where the hosp- the, the healthcare system hasn't been overwhelmed. Um, so there is a lot of variability place to place. But um, so so there's there's the mortality piece. And then there's the other characteristic that you that that each of these new infections has um, is is it's called the R0 and the R0 is a variable that's unique to the, to the organism, um, that is affected also by how it's handled, but it's, it's, you, you basically think of it as if one person has the infection, how many other people are they going to give it to on average? And so something that's not very transmissible might have an R zero of one. Um, if you have an R zero less than one, you're going to, your infection is going to die out and it won't, you know, propagate. But if you're, if your R zero is over one, that means things are headed in a, in a bad direction. Um, there are, and that's the case with coronavirus. Yeah. So COVID-19, this coronavirus probably has an R zero somewhere between two and three. Um, the, you know, a really, really bad R zero is something like measles, uh, which is something like 15 or something. Um, but, uh, those, any R zeros of that nature are really un- uncommon. So, um, so this R zero of th- two to three with with COVID nineteen is really really bad. And when you combine it with the fact that it's the deadliest, you know, acute respiratory infection that's that's commonly seen now um, by a long shot, uh, you've got a recipe for a for, for a pretty devastating pandemic. Yeah, I think one question that a lot of people, I mean, everyone is is um, is curious about is what the, like, the real threat of a reinfection will look like, or, like, a second wave, because, I mean, we've been in quarantine for a month plus now, but if we, if we rush it, it seems like we could be, we could be back quarantined again. Yeah, for sure, and so we've, we've talked a little bit already about antibodies and about, um, you know, are, is previous infection protective? You know, we sort of go into all these assuming that it is, but there's some, sort of disturbing reports, um, particularly out of China and now South Korea, about reinfection in individuals, which is a huge issue. Um, you know, if, 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 if infection really isn't protective, even in the short run against reinfection, that would be a problem that would make this much more difficult to deal with. We really don't know that at this point. But, um, but you know, I think you're, what you're getting at a little bit is on a population societal level now, what's what's going to happen here when we start um, trying to figure out our exit strategy. Um, I think, um, I think that, um, you know, there are a lot of, 
there are a lot of different organisms that have a lot of different patterns over time. Um, you know, you think of, um, there are some organisms, some infections that you sort of have a steady rate all year long and, you know, and, and that's fine. Um, there are some infections that are seasonal, uh, and that come, that just tend to be transmitted at a certain time of year. Um, you know, just as a simple example would be some of the tick-borne diseases that we see. They're pretty much summer diseases because that's when the ticks are, that's when, that's when ticks are out there in high numbers and when people are out there in nature. So, you know, those tick-borne diseases, summer diseases. Influenza, influenza usually comes back in the northern hemisphere sometime between, you know, November and March. Um, and it's pretty predictable that it's going to happen every year. We never know exactly when and we never know exactly which strains. So there's some, so there are a lot of different patterns that, uh, that a infection that is endemic, meaning that it's sort of entrenched and it's here, mm -hmm. can take. They can be constant, they can be variable throughout seasonal seasons, or they can be seasonal. And we really don't know what this is going to be yet. The other coronaviruses that cause, um, there's sort of three common coronaviruses in humans that cause mild, you know, sort of cold-like respiratory infections. And there's some seasonality to them, but they're, you know, they also can, you can catch them all year round. So, so we really don't know, is this going to be something that, um, that we can try to get down to zero? Uh, boy, that's going to be tough. It can happen. You know, we've eradicated a lot of diseases, mostly through vaccination, smallpox, and um, we've come close with a variety of other um, infections, but haven't quite done it because of um, holes in our vaccination strategies. Yeah, so you, you bring up vaccinations, and I, I kind of wanted to ask what what you know about the vaccination process so far, what developing a, a vaccine looks like for any disease, and uh, what it'll look like for coronavirus, how will that affect society in general? Yeah, so, so vaccines, uh, so virology and vaccines are sort of a sub-specialty almost of, uh, of infectious diseases. And it's not, it's not an area that I've spent a whole lot of time other than taking care of patients and, and reading the journals and also, I mean, I have a reasonable understanding, but it's, it's not right not in your, my wheelhouse. Not your specialty. Yeah, it's not my sort of subspecialty. But, uh, but typically, so, so in order to, uh, you know, as most people who sort of pay attention loosely to medical stuff, no, there's some kinds of infections that are really easy to get uh, to develop a vaccine to, some that aren't. Um, sort of the classic example of one that we just have not been able to develop a vaccine to is HIV. It's something we've been trying literally for 30 plus years to do. And, and um, it's uh, because of the nature of the organism, it's been incredibly hard. There's some like influenza that shift their their sort of serotypes over time such that you can't use the same vaccine every year, which is a huge, you know, challenge to, which to is why you get a flu vaccine every year. Yeah. Why you have a new one every year. That's different yeah, from yeah, last yeah. year's. Um, cause they look at what's circulating in the Southern hemisphere and they take an educated guess. Um, and then there's some that are, that are, you know, pretty straightforward. So, um, so this, we, you never really know, and we don't have a great idea right now, of how hard it's going to be to develop a vaccine to this. Now there are none of the none of the human coronaviruses have a vaccine. The only ones that have really been dangerous enough to think about developing a vaccine to would be um, would be SARS and MERS, mm -hmm. which both of which you know had their little moment of uh, epidemic, and then um, you know SARS is gone now and MERS is, is sort of contained geographically. So uh, we don't, there, there aren't any human coronavirus vaccines. I'm told by a veterinary friend of mine that uh, there is a, uh, a, an animal coronavirus that there's a vaccine to. I'm not sure. Uh, I don't know anything about that. What the application but, will look yeah. like to humans. But, but in this, so, so we really don't know. Um, we really don't, we don't know how hard it's going to be. We don't know that it's even going to be possible. Um, but the timeline of vaccine development is such that um, is, is largely guided by, you know, the science, but also by the FDA in this country, um, where you've got, when you've got a vaccine candidate, in other words, you've got something you think is going to work, you have to do a phase one, a phase one studies, phase two studies, phase three studies. So phase one studies are really safety. Um, you take something that you think you need to give to people to prevent an infection. You inject a small number of people and you make sure that they <laughs> survive and they don't have any horrible effects. The next step is you go on to a phase two study where, which is dose finding where <clears throat> you try different doses of it and see 
what, you know, how people tolerate it. Is there immune response that you can measure like in antibody responses? And then the phase three studies is when you're actually putting it, you know, injecting people and trying to see if it prevents infection. There have been lots of, lots of times where, uh, many times where you go down that pathway, get to stay to phase three and fail. And so we really, we're right now at the very earliest stages. Okay. Uh, with, with vaccines being talked about, I wanted to talk about like what, have been the promising treatments on a patient scale for coronavirus? Because there's a lot of talk in the news about hydroxychloroquine and, and whatever drug that they want to brew up and how like this affects coronavirus. But what, what experience have you had with treating patients with these kind of drugs? Sure. So, um, so one of the really, really interesting things about being an ID doc right now is, and really being a, a, any kind of a medicine doctor right now, is that... Um, normally the research world, you know, moves along at a pretty steady pace and you publish papers in the medical literature. Um, but the time that it takes to go from experiment to something in writing, you know, in a journal that goes out to in the mail or, or by, uh, you know, on the internet is like months and months and months and months. Um, and one of the things that has been interesting to watch is to see how the world of medical literature has adapted to this, which is that, Papers are getting, you know, <laughs> papers are getting submitted, accepted and printed and, and, and put out for the rest of the world to see really quickly, which is a blessing and a curse. It's really helpful because you can see data um, quickly, uh, which we have to see in order to know how to deal with this. But the, the curse is they're not going through very strong what's called peer review, which is the system that medical literature goes through in order to make sure that it's, you know, legitimately important, well done uh, research. And so... A lot of what you, a lot of what's, a lot of the confusion has arisen from the fact that um, there's a lot of, there's a lot of data coming out. It's, most of it is sort of small studies, um, but it's not, also not the highest quality stuff. And so there are a bunch of, there are a bunch of sort of proposed treatments that may or may not work. um, And uh, people are sort of, um, they're really at this point, at this point in time on whatever it is, April 19th. Um, there isn't any one thing that people say this is going to be what we use. So there's been, um, you know, hydroxychloroquine, uh, which is a drug that's been around for a long time to treat rheumatoid arthritis, um, has been sort of, and chloroquine, which has been around for a long time to treat malaria, have been repurposed for this. Um, And there was some early data in a very small study that came out of France that was somewhat promising that showed that viral shedding was significantly decreased with these medicines. There's some, there's the more data that comes out, um, I think there's more doubt, more and more doubt being cast on the possibility that this is actually helping people. The reality is that a lot of people in this country have gotten hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin, which is a common antibiotic, which were studied together in that French study and shown to decrease viral shedding. So, um, so the, the, the recent, the, the most recent study about that, about hydroxychloroquine that I've read late this week, um, was in a, a bigger sample than the French study and showed no difference in viral shedding, uh, no difference in mortality, no difference in, you know, ICU admission. So, so things that at one time seem promising then fall off the table. So what is it, what is this drug in particular doing for patients with coronavirus? So At, like now, <laughs> probably nothing, although a lot of people are getting it. Um, it's, it's, and it's also pretty variable, I would assume. Or? Well, I mean, it's, it's, it's just to go off on a small tangent here. I mean, one of the, it's also been really fascinating with this because this is a disease that we had no knowledge of. And so we're all sort of new to it. It's been really interesting how, you know, how much widespread interest there is in these treatments and how people, there's so many people who are like, never really were into medicine. Yeah. And now they're like now. reading and making suggestions. And it's like, it's interesting, but it's That's also like, doing this it's now, also but... a little bit maddening because, because you're sort of used to a certain process and a certain level of, inf- a level of quality of data that you expect in order to say, yeah, I'm ready to give this to humans. You know, um, one of the, <laughs> one of the, um, you know, the, one of the things in, in medicine in academic medicine that you kind of think of as the gold standard of what you, how you want something to be tested in order to really arrive at the conclusion that it works is a randomized controlled trial, which is, you know, take, take a hundred people or a thousand people, um, 
get them all to agree to either take a the real thing or placebo, complete you know randomize them. In other words, don't pick who gets what, but literally have them you know <laughs> pick a number. Yeah. And give them either the real thing or not the real thing, and see what happens. That's how you figure it out. The problem. Or what, what I've seen a lot of now is you see a lot of people accepting anecdotes as, as truth, fact. as fact. Uh, one of my mentors in academics used to say, and it's something lots of people uh, have heard this, say um, the plural of anecdote is not data. Uh, data is is higher level information. Data is what you get from a randomized controlled trial. You can't take 10 anecdotes, string them together and say, look, it works. This is the answer. This is the answer because those anecdotes are only the positive ones. There are, the medical literature is full of what are called case reports, which are, hey, this guy had COVID-19. We gave him hydroxychloroquine and he got better. You could find, you know, 10 case reports of that. And some people would look at that and say, oh, my gosh, this must work. Come to the conclusion. <laughs> the reality is. Well, people want, people want that positive. Because people want. Yeah. They, well, yeah. And, and everybody kind wants of to here. help. You know, people want to help figure out what works. But the reality is that, you know, um, probably those 10 people who got better on hydroxychloroquine were part of the 98% of people who get COVID who are going to recover anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so what you really need two randomized sides to get it. So, so. So hydroxychloroquine right now is uh, looking a little, looking like the star might be fading. Um, remdesivir is a drug that we that was studied for Ebola, and it's now being studied by the NIH in a large, uh, on a large scale multi center clinical trial. Um, not widely available outside of those trials. Which is also something with hydroxychloroquine that you mentioned. It's it's like a really a readily available drug that most hospitals have. Exactly, which is they why they can repurpose it. Which is why people want it to work because it was because, easy. Yeah, because nobody's you don't have to manufacture more. It's already there. Um, there is uh, another treatment uh, that's a super old school, but but may well be useful. Is uh, what's called uh, convalescent serum, which is you take you take basically blood donated by people who've recovered from the disease and you uh, transfuse it into someone who's got the disease now. You would hope that the antibodies in the blood will help change the course of that disease in that person. So that's being trialed. Um, there are probably eh, probably about five or six other drugs that are equally sort of at an equal stage of possibility that are being studied. So really right now, there's no, there's no drug that we know works. This is the care of this is really supportive care at its, at its core. All right. With all that being said about treatment, I think the question on everybody's minds and a lot of people listening and a lot of the reason people are listening is because they want to hear what the next say six months to a year will look like. And I'm not asking you for the answer. I'm just asking you for a, an expert's guess. Yeah. So, you know, there, there are some infections like this, some emerging infections that, that come, show up, do their damage, and disappear. Um, SARS hasn't come back. Um, you know, do we really understand why? Not, exa- not exactly. I mean, you can kind of wave your hands and, 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 and try to explain it. But, um, but the reality with this probably is going to be different, and that's based mostly on looking at what's happened in some of the Asian countries that were affected early. Um, South uh, Korea did a great job with their uh, with their outbreak, um, but now are having a, a, sort of a secondary um, uh, batch of cases. Hong Kong, same thing. Singapore, same thing. So, so it, it seems like, and, and that's not surprising now that we sort of understand more about the virus that it's so hard to control in part because it's probably being shed by people who don't look sick, and so it's really hard to control. So. You know, so right now we're doing all these social distancing, we're doing masking, we're, um, you know, at a population level, I'd say those are the, probably the, the two the two biggest things. Um, I think what's probably going to, over over the in this country, over the past couple of months, even though we're like two months in here, there still is not as much testing as there needs to be. Mm-hmm. And so I think in order to try to open up the country again, what, what we're going to end up seeing is... Um, or, or what we should, in my opinion, end up seeing is a real strong effort at a regional slash national level to make sure that we are testing like aggressively frequently. Um, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if most of the people listening here at some point over the next six months will have a nasopharyngeal swab shoved in their nostril um, at least once and in some cases more. Um, I, I think there's going to have to be an effort to test aggressively. And then the other thing that's going to have to be done is there's going to have to be a really aggressive um, public health effort to track contacts. 
the public health system in the U.S. is a little bit of a, like, is, is sort of operates in the shadows most of the time. Um, a lot of people probably aren't aware of what it, exactly it is. But um, the CDC is sort of the the big public health agency in the U.S. government. And there are people who work for the CDC who are stationed in every state. And every state also has a public health lab. So in Missouri, it's in Jefferson City in the capital. Um, and um, and then every county has a health department. And, and so there are certain health functions that are assigned to those. The health departments do things like treat STDs and, you know, uh, treat tuberculosis because those are those are things of real public health interest because they're so transmissible if nobody's paying attention. But but the surveillance function of public health is incredibly important. Contact tracing um, among diseases that are highly contagious like this. The, one of the problems that we've had here is that the public health infrastructure hasn't been well funded for a long time. Um, and so uh, there just aren't as many people doing that as there used to be. And I think there's going to have to be, and I think there already is an effort by the government to beef that up. Um, I think they're going to, you know, for example, now, you know, St. Louis City, St. Louis County each have a health department and they each have, you know, a handful of people, smart people working for them, but just not enough manpower or woman power. There's just not enough, um, not enough people to do the work. And so I think a combination of aggressive testing and aggressive um, aggressive uh, contact tracing by public health in combination with sort of a phased rollout of, you know, let's try to open this up and see what happens. And and so we've already seen, you know, for example, uh, you know, you go to the grocery store now and um, they have us all, you know, spaced out six feet apart and they only let enough people, a certain number of people in and there's new barriers. So I think as, as this, as, as, as we try to you know, restart the economy, reopen the society again, I think you'll see sort of bit by bit, um, one thing at a time, some areas opening up with new, you know, restrictive guidelines. Yeah. New ways that we deal with them. You know, if movie theaters open up or not sitting next to each other, you know, exactly that kind of thing. And, 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 you know, so new, new rules about, you know, keeping yourself separated, not being in big crowds, wearing masks, all those kind of things. And so what I expect to happen based on the Asian experience is, you know, I think our numbers here in Missouri are peaking now. I think they'll keep going down to some level, at which point people will start feeling brave again (laughs) and we'll say, okay, we're going to do this now that we've got a plan to test more aggressively. We've got a bigger supply of tests. We've got hopefully created some infrastructure for places that people can go to get tested, maybe even for free. Um, and hopefully, hopefully, and tracked in some centralized way. Um, and so I'm sure that as things get rolled out, we'll see secondary outbreaks, we'll see um, backsliding. And the question is, are we going to get to that point where we can be somewhat normal again? Or are we always going to have to accept some kind of, you know, some kind of new measures? And then the next thing that you superimpose on top of that is, is someone going to come up with a vaccine so this can all go away? Um, my sincere hope is yes. You know, I like exactly. <laughs> I like, Glass full. I like American life in uh, the exactly. 20th century. It's a beautiful. The 21st century. It's a beautiful thing. And so, you know, what I um, the the vaccine timing uh, probably is 12 to 18 months from the beginning of this, which means 10 to 16 months from now. Um, so I think we can. You know, I, I expect that the next year is going to be bumpy. We'll have ups and downs and outbreaks and fits and starts and um, maybe different states may be doing different things or there may be a, you know, a cohesive federal approach. I'm not sure. It depends on really depends on what the next administration wants. I think the current administration wants it to be up to the states. Yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, anyway, so I don't think this is going to be a smooth exit. I think the big hope to get us back to normal is going to be a vaccine. And but even with that being said, you said it was 12 to 18 months. So that's a long ways away. So this next, the, next, the rest of 2020 is going to be a new life, a new life with yeah, coronavirus. The rest of 2020, beginning of 2021, we'll see. I mean, um, but uh, but you know, I'm 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 optimistic. I, I I think and hope there will be a, an effective vaccine, and I think that'll ultimately get us back to more normal. More effective treatments too. Hopefully, it, maybe possibly. you know, viruses are tough. You know, we take for granted that we can treat infections. But the reality is we've got great antibacterial medicines. We've got good antiparasitic medicines. We've got pretty good antifungal medicines, but we don't have that many good antiviral medicines. We've got, we've got medicines that treat HIV. We've got medicines that treat hepatitis C and B. Those are all viruses, but 
there are a lot of viruses that we just don't, and 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 there are good viruses, uh, good medicines for herpes viruses too. This is a different ball game that we we you know we may there there may not be an existing antiviral that turns up to be effective against this. But you know if there isn't a, an effective drug that comes up from the ones we've got, I'm sure there's the next step of drug development, which is people looking for new therapeutics that are specific to this bug uh, are being are being uh, done now. So you know it's it's going to be it's going to be a haul, uh, but I think there's there's good good hope that eventually things will get back to normal. Uh, one thing I kind of want to close on is uh, if you are living with an essential worker like I am, or if you are an essential worker like you are, what are the precautions that you take? What are the precautions you should be taking? Mm-hmm. And I mean, that applies to the future too. As people start to go out into society, what should we be doing? What's the most effective? Yeah. So, so, um, you know, it's, it's interesting. If we all lived alone, this would be all, this would be easier <laughs> because, uh, you know, and I've got, you know, I've got plenty of colleagues at work who don't have families and they, for them, it's easier. You know, they can, put themselves in a high risk situation at work and come home and say, yeah, Not if, if I'm sick, it's at least, it's only me. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a little different, you know, for coming home to uh, family, but I also recognize that it's not just healthcare workers who are doing that. I mean, there are a lot of people out there, um, whether they're uh, working at the grocery store, working at the grocery store, like the restaurant, you, you name it. There are a lot of things, you know, Home Depot, they're all open now. And, and those people are also putting themselves in harm's way. So, I think, you know, for me, I'm, I'm, I do see patients with COVID, um, almost every day in one way or another. Um, and I'm around people who, um, may be sick. And so, um, so when I get home every day, I, um, you know, I take off all my clothes as I come in, I put them in the washer, I go straight up to the shower and I shower and, and, you know, that should take care of my body and my clothes. Um, the, the last issue is, you know, what if I'm asymptomatically shedding? Um, and so if I, um, if I thought, you know, if if I've had found myself in a really, uh, dicey situation, say if I was unprotected, if I wasn't wearing protective equipment and I knew that I'd interfaced with someone who had COVID, uh, I would do one of two things. I would either get a hotel room and stay away for 14 days, which a lot of people are doing, um, or I would wear, a mask at home, um, probably a surgical mask, but, but a barrier cloth mask, maybe, you know, maybe as well, or maybe effective as well. We just don't really know yet. Um, so, so those are the main things. And, um, uh, I think, um, you know, there's a time coming up, uh, where I'm going to be more intensively seeing COVID patients for about a three week period. And I haven't decided yet if I'm just going to get myself a hotel room and stay away for three weeks plus maybe two at the back end yeah. or, uh, or, or, or what, but it, it kind of, you know, it, it, in, in, for me personally, that calculus is about, you know, how likely am I to have gotten infected today, mm-hmm. you know? And I haven't had that feeling yet where I felt like I had sort of was, it, it, it was in a really high risk situation, which is why I'm still here talking to you. I, I mean, I've grown up in this house and you've, you, you didn't just become a doctor, you know what I mean? Like I, so I, good precautions go a long way. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that's most of uh, of what I touched on is what I wanted to cover. Thank you. Cool. That Thank was you. a good time. Yeah, yeah. I appreciate Pretty... the questions and uh, and uh, it's been uh, it's always fun. <laughs>